Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. I love that story of Katie uh, serving in our next gen. My wife and I have three kids down there and are so thankful for many like Katie who are investing in the next gen so that they can come to know Jesus themselves and live because the future of the church is entrusted to them as they rise up and become the young men and young women that God has called them to be. I'm so thankful for that. Um, As we step into our series here today, let me pray for us together. God in heaven, we thank you. We exalt you. As we just sang, we pray that your name would be lifted above all others. Jesus, you reign here and now in this moment today. And we want to uh, humbly yet eagerly surrender ourselves to you. I pray as we open scripture today, we believe it is your word. Would you speak to us through it? May it have its intended impact on us that we might not just hear, but may we live it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are back into our series in Malachi today, where we spent, uh, I'd say, a little bit over a month now looking at this powerful prophecy. And this is God's word to his people at a time where they had drifted far from him. I recognize you may be new today or just joining us sporadically through this series, um, This is a a crucial time as we wrap up these last couple weeks to understand where we are and why. Maybe you've had this happen before. I find this happening to me frequently where I'm in uh, in the midst of multiple conversations or I'm actually should be in a conversation and I realize partway through what's going on here. And maybe you're at the dinner table and there are two or three different things being talked about and you stop and say, wait, what are you guys talking about? Or maybe you're actually talking to someone and they say something in your mind starts wandering, following that squirrel, and you realize, I'm not here anymore. And you say, I'm sorry, can, can you say that again? Uh, we're at a point in the series where it's important for us to, whether you've been tracking the whole time or have just joined us today, or maybe you, it's kind of a blur what the last five weeks have looked like. It's, it's an important time to step back and realize, why was this written? What is God saying, and, and for what purpose, to, to what end? And The first two verses in the passage that we have today speak directly to that. They paint a picture of the whole storyline. We're in Malachi chapter 3, so if you have a Bible, open there. We're going to look at six or seven verses today, but the first two verses for us tell the story of all that's gone on in the book of Malachi. So Malachi chapter 3, verses I'll read verses 6 and uh, most of verse 7. Here's what God says through Malachi. For I, the Lord, do not change... Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. These two verses tell the story of all that's gone on in Malachi. There's a a recurring theme. That though God's people stray, God keeps calling them back. So time after time after time, God's people are wandering, turning aside. We see this isn't just them, this is generations, right? Verse 7 tells us, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes. Generation after generation. And God says, you have a long history of ignoring my commands, of turning aside from, from what I ask of you. 
which ought to result in judgment. But for the mercy and faithfulness of God. In fact, it's only because of his faithfulness. Verse 6 tells us that the Lord reminds us, I do not change. I do not change. I have not and I will not change. And if he did change, he would react to how his people had been unfaithful. The truth is, from the beginning, God's posture, his bent toward his people has been toward redemption, restoring them, bringing them back, because that's, that's who God is. He doesn't change. Even though his people waver, even though his people wander away from him and, and rebel against him, he remains the same. He calls them back. You can trace this storyline Throughout all of scripture, people stray, generations stray, but God calls them back. This is a story of God's people. I want you to notice two things about this call that God gives in verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you. The first thing to notice about this is that this is about relationship. This isn't just about a dutiful responsibility of obeying the rules. God says, return to me. The whole point of the covenant between God and his people was relationship. So the commands and the guidelines flowed from a place of relationship. They represented relationship. This is why God calls them back to himself, not just back to their responsibilities. He says, return to me and I will return to you. This is speaking of a restoration to relationship between God and his people. The second thing to notice about this call to return is that it hinges on repentance. The biblical concept of repentance in in the ancient language was the term metanoia. It's an about face, so a 180 change of direction completely. That's what's needed here. Return. Repent of where you're going. Stop. Turn back toward God. Repentance. This is what's needed to bring about restoration between God and his people in their relationship. And and this is what it takes in relationships and in marriages for restoration. Repentance. He says, return to me and I will return to you. This is a recurring theme we see throughout Malachi, though God's people stray, God keeps calling them back. This is one of the most powerful calls in in all of Scripture. As it plays out, it tells the story of, of humanity that despite our rebellion, God mercifully calls us back. So before we see what this call looks like, in verses 8, And following, may we first hear verse 7, each of us today, the Lord calling you, return to me, return to me, and I will return to you. God seeks relationship with each one of us, and though we stray, he keeps calling us back. In Malachi, we've seen several episodes of this, and this has played out, we've talked about kind of like a courtroom scene where God brings the evidence forward and pinpoints his people's rebellion. 
So the specific ways in which they had wandered and walked away from him, God pinpoints these, and yet in God's faithfulness and mercy, he calls them back. So in chapter 1, we saw the half-hearted worship called out, how their worthless sacrifices that weren't given from their best and from a sincere heart. God calls this out. We see later in chapter 2, God calling out the priests and spiritual leaders who were failing to point them toward God and failing to remind them of the covenant and the relationship that God had established with them and the responsibilities within that relationship. We saw moving into the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, God calling out their marriages, how they Some were choosing spouses that pulled them away from God rather than pointing him toward God, which is the purpose in marriage. We see God calling out others who were using divorce as an opt-out clause in marriage instead of remaining faithful to their covenant partner. And last week, Pastor Matthew shared with us from chapter 3 how God confronts their neglect of justice. And ironically and hypocritically, they actually question God's justice while they themselves oppress and overlook the vulnerable. In each of these, we've seen God call out their sin and then call them to return to him. So now in chapter three, we see another dimension of this. We're going to pick it back up at the end of verse 7 and see what it is that God confronts. He says in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. God confronts his people directly. We've talked about it's like a courtroom scene where God makes a claim. He establishes that, the validity of that claim with some evidence, and then he renders a, a call or an outcome or a verdict, if you will, on his people. This is how we're going to structure the message again today, the claim, the evidence, and the verdict. And it's pretty straightforward with the claim and the evidence. They're, they're laid out for us in verses 8 and 9. The claim is that they are robbing God. They're robbing God. The same verb shows up four times, rob, robbed, robbing, robbed. It just within a, a verse, it's, it's like, whoa, it's startling, right? God confronts them on robbing him. Now their response is, what? How? Almost a, like an incredulous posture, one of disbelief. And this is, as we've seen throughout Malachi, pretty typical of, of God's people. Their attitude and response when God calls out their sin isn't one of acknowledgement, it's one of deflection, disbelief. They look at their problems and what's happening around them, and rather than seeing their own responsibility in it, they, they actually point the blame toward, toward God. 
they see the drought and the plague and they think they're, they're victims, right? They're victims and they see there's an assumption of their own innocence. And even more importantly, the fracture and brokenness in their relationship with God, they fail to see how their own heart and choices are actually creating those fractures. The claim here is that they are stealing from God. You are robbing me, God says, point blank, direct. And then in verse 8 and verse 9, he lays out two pieces of evidence to back up this claim. We see the first one in verse 8. He says, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Here's the first piece of evidence. In your tithes and contributions. The first piece of evidence is that they keep what should be given back to God. They keep it for themselves. So God calls them out on on robbing him, and they say, what, where, when? And God says, here's how. You're withholding tithes and contributions. They keep for themselves what belongs to God. We've mentioned throughout this series that the What undergirds this whole message is the covenant relationship that God has with his people. Now, part of their covenant relationship with God included responsibilities. So, in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus, this covenant is recorded for us. And as part of that covenant relationship, there were things that God's people, when this covenant was read to them and declared to them that they agreed as a people. They said, yes, we will do it. So their forefathers, the generations that went before, had agreed to these responsibilities. And one of those was actually to tithe. So in Leviticus chapter 27, it's written this way. It says that one-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. One-tenth. This is where the term tithe comes from. A tithe is simply 10%. 10%. They were to give one-tenth of all that came in. Their produce, their crops, their money, their goods. And this tithe wasn't just a, a mechanical obedience, a duty that they had to fulfill. It, it rather was a sign, an expression of their relationship with God and their trust of God. So they would trust God, invest in his work, and, and give as an act of worship. A recognition that, that it's really his. The verb form here in chapter 3 is a participle verb, which means that this is ongoing. So it's not just that oh, they forgot to tithe last week, but rather that this is an ongoing practice, that they fail to give back to God what belongs to him and rather keep it for themselves. And by keeping that portion for themselves, God says they are robbing him, shortchanging him. In our yard, we have an apple tree kind of on the south side of our side yard. And we just moved there this spring. We didn't really know what the trees were until they started growing things. And, and it was kind of annoying to mow the lawn to be kicking all these dead apples out of the place, but out of the way. But we thought, well, let's try these apples. And we bit into them. Not very good. 
And some of them had like, you know, the wormholes in them and stuff growing on them. Didn't try to eat those. But we ended up reaching out to my sister-in-law whose family, uh, her extended family, are, are apple farmers. They have an apple orchard to try to find out what are we supposed to do? And we realized there are a lot of things in the spring that we could have and should have done. But in all honesty, I have very little interest in being an apple farmer. None. Well, maybe if it was a Honeycrisp apple tree, I'd be a little more motivated. But let's just say that I asked one of you to take care of our apple tree. And I said, all right, I'm going to give you charge of this apple tree. You treat it in the spring, do whatever you need to do, and you can have 90% of the apples. Take them for yourself, enjoy them, but give us 10% to enjoy as a family. I would be entrusting to you charge of my apple tree. Wouldn't be yours, but you would be given authority and responsibility. And I would expect in return with that agreement that a portion of what that tree produced would be given back. This is how God established the way for his people to view their possessions and their income. Every good and perfect gift coming from above, entrusted to them. Jesus speaks of this in several parables, given to them as a means of stewardship. A stewardship that is intended for a specific purpose. Here, in Malachi 3, under the Old Covenant, their responsibility to tithe is being neglected. So they're keeping for themselves some or all of that 10% that should be given back to God. That's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence we see in verse 9. God says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The second piece of evidence is that their entire land was under a curse. This is described for us down in verse 11 in a little bit more detail when through Malachi, God references the drought and crop failure and the locust plague. This is what the nation of Israel was experiencing. They had returned from exile and they were in a season of incredible economic hardship. This is part of what has led to their, the chip on their shoulder, right? Their incredulous attitude toward God, of feeling like God hasn't come through. Look at this. We're suffering our crops aren't producing. The fruit's falling off the trees and the vines before we can even harvest them. This is what they were experiencing. And to them, they viewed it as a sign or evidence of God's unfaithfulness. But God actually points out that it's evidence of the opposite. Back in the book of Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy 28, which records this covenant, and then in chapter 28 speaks of the blessings that will flow if they follow through on their responsibilities. But it also speaks of some warnings and curses that will come upon them if they fail to follow through on their responsibilities. So uh, listen to this. I want to read this specifically for you from Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. It says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So caution. Caution. If you don't follow through, 
This is what will happen. And God, through Moses, proclaims curse after curse after curse that will come upon his people. Warnings of what will unfold. And down in verse 38, specifically listen to what he says. He says, if you don't fulfill your responsibilities, if you do not obey, listen, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little. For the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. The evidence that God is giving is, he says, look around you. The drought, the hardship, the failure in your crops, you assume it's not your fault. You assume that you're the victims of this, when in reality, your land testifies against you. Your land testifies to your unfaithfulness. The failure that they're experiencing in their land is a result of the curse which flows from their disobedience. And it's actually God's faithfulness to his word that is bringing about these consequences. The things that were happening all around them are exactly what God had said would happen in Deuteronomy 28 if they broke the covenant. So God points to this because they should have known. They should have known rather than blaming God or being incredulous, they should have recognized that the failure of their crops and their olive trees literally dropping its fruit to the ground before they could harvest it were signs and indicators that they had wandered from God and were failing to be obedient. They should have known this. This comes back to, uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, what God confronted in the priests and in the spiritual leaders, the parents failing to pass the covenant on to the next generation. This is part of what God confronted, that the priests, rather than pointing people toward God, pointed them away. Rather than reminding them of what they ought to do, reminded them of what they wanted to hear. This is true in the temple and it was reflected in the homes. The responsibility of spiritual leaders, parents, pastors, elders, to point people toward God and his truth, to testify, to remind, to point one another toward God. God could, as he could have in the other episodes in Malachi, God could swing the gavel, right? Boom. And, and banish them. Send them back into exile. Or God could say, it's over between us. We're done. You don't deserve to be my people. But as verse 6 highlighted for us, because he does not change, because of his unchanging faithfulness, they're not destroyed. They're not consumed. Once again, God gives them the opportunity to turn back to him. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. On verses 10 through 12, God articulates what this looks like, what this return is. 
Here's what he says, verse 10. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will no longer destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then, verse 12, then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This verdict that God lays out for his people has, has two parts to it. There is a command and a promise. The command to his people is to fill the storehouse. He says in verse 10, bring the full tithes into the storehouse. Their role is to give faithfully. Bring the full tithe, which implies that perhaps they were tithing some, which actually isn't really a tithe. They were giving a few percent, but not the full tithe. God says, bring the full tithe, all of it, into the storehouse to fill the storehouse. Now, I know you might be kind of trying to jump into our day and apply. Just hold on a second. We'll get there. I want you to just live in the, like, 7th century B.C. for, for another moment. What he's asking for from them, what he's calling for, is not just finances. This is their crops and their produce and finances. Whatever was needed to resource the ministry in the temple was supplied by the people of God. There was, a, we don't have time to detail it, but there was a robust system in place that would account for the money and the crops and the animals that would be brought into the storehouse and it was distributed to different types of priests and there was a tithe and a tithe upon the tithe that went to another division and the way that was all administrated was, was established in the law. And this system allowed for the people of God to resource the ministry of God so that worship could be carried out. It would care for the priests and the needs of their family. It would be given to people within the community who had specific need. So God says, bring the full tithe, fill the storehouse. The command that he's giving them is to fulfill their responsibility in resourcing God's ministry in the temple. Now, God's response to this is beautiful. It, it, it would be sufficient if God just commanded them, bring the full tithe, period. But look at what God says. God's response is that if you do, I will blow you away with blessings on your land, God says in verse 11 that he will reverse the curse that is upon their land so that the, the crops will be bountiful. And not only will God restore their crops, notice the effect that this will have. This blessing in verse 12 will extend as a testimony to, to nations, to all nations. Nations will call you blessed and your land will be a delight. Not only would God's ministry be fulfilled, but his people would be blessed and that blessing would flow forth 
to be life-giving to those around them. The stigma that the exiles had, they lived under the stigma and shame of, of, of seeing the drought and the struggle. They were scorned among the nations. The people of Jacob were used as a slang word, a curse word, or a swear word to speak of, of, of abject failure. And God says that instead, that stigma would be overturned and they would become a delight. So the verdict here that God gives is, give faithfully and God will bless abundantly. This is what he calls for from his people. Give faithfully and God will bless abundantly. God says, go ahead, t- test me in this. Follow through. Give faithfully, and not only will God end the drought, but he'll overwhelm them with blessings. So what about us? You might have been wondering kind of throughout this message, is is this for today? Perhaps you glanced down in chapter 3 earlier this morning and you saw that this talks about tithing and you already kind of put your walls up and got defensive. Is this for us? The command to give tithes and fill the storehouse and the promise of God that flows forth for those who faithfully do? These are good questions. They're tied into how we view the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, which is a term for all of the Old Testament. There were several different covenants, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. Those are generalized in an Old Covenant. And the specific responsibilities of that covenant, the question is, are are we bound to those? Are they gone or do they still exist? If Christ fulfilled the law, what does it mean for us? One way to discern the old covenant is to look at how Jesus speaks of it. How did he approach it? So listen with me. In Luke chapter 11, it's the only place that we find tithing addressed by Jesus, and he does so by inference. So in Luke chapter 11, Jesus has been invited into the home of a Pharisee, and he's dining with him, and Jesus takes this opportunity to confront the Pharisees on their hypocrisy and their wickedness, and as Jesus is doing this, as he's confronting them, Listen to verse 42, what Jesus says. Jesus says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So Jesus is saying, you tithe, but you neglect justice. But then listen to what Jesus says next. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's saying, you ought to have tithed without neglecting justice. You catch that? So Jesus, by inference, actually affirms that the Pharisees should be tithing. 
And I know some of you are already like pulling up addresses in the book of Hebrews that talk about Jesus and fulfillment and all that. And, and you're right. It's not a black and white thing. The, the beauty of the old covenant is that it foreshadowed for us what it meant to be God's people. But I'll submit to you that nowhere in Jesus' teaching and nowhere in his ministry or in the rest of the New Testament for that matter is, is the bar lowered. Actually, Jesus raises the bar. So to the Pharisees in Luke 11, it's also parallel recorded in Matthew 23 where he says, you ought to have tithed. Jesus actually raises the bar. He doesn't tell people to give 10% and follow him. He says to the rich young ruler, sell everything and follow me. In the book of Acts, the early church doesn't give 10% of their resources and possessions to the church. It says that they had all things in common. They gave everything. What we see modeled in Christ and in the early church is actually an even greater generosity than the 10% that the Old Covenant called for. Now, has the Old Covenant been fulfilled? Absolutely. Are we bound by its responsibilities? No. But do parts of the Old Covenant still foreshadow for us the ways that we live as God's covenant people? Certainly. And what God says here in Malachi chapter 3 is one such example. A foreshadowing of God's people in stewardship and in generosity supplying the needs of God's ministry. So when God's people turn their resources over to him, God not only supplies the needs but he blesses them. He pours out blessings on them. This is a kingdom principle. We've seen it play out many times. I could, if we had time, share several stories from my own life of in a posture of desperation and dependence, seeing how God, when we've been faithful with our resources, how he blows us away to supply. We've seen this as, as a church family, that when we seek him first, he supplies this is what Jesus promised in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. The, all these things that he's talking about are looking at the birds of the field that they don't need to sow or reap. Don't worry about what you will wear or eat because God will supply if you seek his kingdom first. So the call to fill the storehouse is a call for us. The way that God's ministry is resourced is by his people. We don't have a physical storehouse like the temple did, but there are needs for worship. There are needs for ministry. There are needs that the church has the opportunity to meet in our community that are resourced as God's people fill the storehouse. So I'm going to be transparent. Here's what this looks like for, for my family. I know that we're not bound by the old covenant. But for our, 
our family, my wife and I, we, we give 10% off the top of our household income to New Hope Church. And we do this because we believe in the ministry here and we see it, in a sense, as, as our tithe. And then we give above and beyond that to Christ-centered organizations and missionaries and special opportunities that come up like, like the Thanksgiving offering or, or someone in need. That's what we do as a stewardship. New Hope Church is very similar. For New Hope Church, 10% of our budget goes to ministry beyond our walls. That's what we do. Ministry beyond our walls, both in our community and around the world. We do something called our December tithe. So next month you'll hear about this. In the month of December, anything that comes in above and beyond our weekly budgeted giving, we give away 10% of that to Christ-centered organizations. This is the way that we as a church fill the storehouse in the kingdom of God. What about you? What about you? Do you view your possessions as yours or God's? Do you faithfully give back to God or do you withhold all or most of it for yourself? Allow me, if I may, remind you to remind you of the reason behind God speaking this forth in Malachi chapter 3. God's purpose in this wasn't just duty or obedience. The point of the covenant and the purpose of this passage here in Malachi chapter 3 was about relationship. Remember, God says, return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. This is speaking of the relationship and from that relationship, a confidence and a trust that God's people can have because they are secure in him as his people. God wants you to trust him. God calls you to follow him. Now, your resources, your money, that's just one of the ways, but it's an important way. It's the means by which God resources the ministry to unfold. Return to me, and I will return to you. How shall we return, they ask. God says, fill the storehouse. Fill the storehouse so that there is no more need let me pray as the team comes to close us. God, we acknowledge that everything that we have ultimately is yours. You've entrusted it to us. Not to hoard or to keep for ourselves, but to steward faithfully and to multiply forward so that your kingdom is established through generations. We thank you for this word today and I pray that you'd help each of us examine our own lives, the ways in which we need to return to you. We thank you for your, thank, thank you for your promise that even when we are unfaithful, you are faithful. That despite our disobedience, you still call us back to yourself. Today, may we take that invitation to return to you, to walk in relationship and trust faithfully. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.